provide you with a net operating income, and then there also will be a list of the other expenses and some non-operating expenses to eventually come to the net income, which is the actual cash flow you are receiving at the property. It's that time of year again, tax season. (laughs) How are you doing on tax season? How's that treating you so far? Well, if you have a lot of receipts and you're organizing things like your income and expenses and creating reports, and you're also trying to keep up to date with a new tax reform this year, there's a lot of deductions that we can take to maximize return, and there's a lot of strategies that we need to make sure we're aware of. Are you optimizing for new tax laws? Well, our sponsor, Stessa, teamed up with the top real estate CPAs to offer you the ultimate rental property tax guide in I've read it. This is the ultimate rental property tax guide. I'm talking about they've got everything covered from opportunity zones to entity selection to establishing a home office, travel expenses, what type of travel expenses are deductible, real estate strategies, tax strategies, capital improvements versus repairs. I mean, this is the ultimate rental property tax guide. And you can get it for free by going to stessa.com forward slash best taxes. You have to sign up for an account, but the account is free. So when you sign up for a free Stessa account, you will get this guide. This is worth its weight in gold for sure. Go to stessa.com, S-T-E-S-S-A.com forward slash best taxes. And when you work with Stessa, Stessa is a tool that helps every rental property owner track, manage, and communicate the performance of our real estate investment. So it's going to save a lot of time during tax season, but then also through the rest of the season as we go and grow our rental portfolio and optimize that. So go to stessa.com forward slash best taxes. Get that ultimate rental property tax guide. There needed to be a resource on apartment syndication that not only talked about each aspect of the syndication process, but how to actually do each of the things and go into it in detail. And we thought, hey, why not make it free too? That's why we launched Syndication School and Theo Hicks will go through a particular aspect of apartment syndication on today's episode and get into the details of how to do that particular thing. Enjoy this episode And for more on apartment syndication and how to do things, go to apartmentsyndication.com or to learn more about the Apartment Syndication School, go to syndicationschool.com so you can listen to all the previous episodes. Hi, Best Ever listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the Syndication School series, a free resource focused on the how-tos of apartment syndication. As always, I'm your host, Theo Hicks. Each week, we air two podcast episodes that focus on a specific aspect of the apartment syndication investment strategy, that is raising money from passive investors to buy apartments and sharing in the profits. And for the majority of these podcast episodes, which together will create a series, we will offer a document or spreadsheet or some sort of resource for you to download for free. All of these documents, as well as the past Syndication School series, can be found at syndicationschool.com. This episode is part three of a series entitled Breaking Down the Apartment Financials. Last week, in parts one and two, 
we broke down the first financial document that you need in order to underwrite a deal, which is the rent roll, which is essentially a schedule of rents at the property. So it's a document that breaks down who's living in what unit, at what rent, and what other charges, and at what lease terms. That is one of the documents that you need in order to underwrite a new deal, and that is also one of the documents you will want to provide to your passive investors on an ongoing basis. In this part three, as well as tomorrow's episode part four, we will be focusing on the second financial document that you need in order to underwrite a deal, as well as the second financial document you will want to provide to your passive investors after you've acquired a deal, and that is the T12, also known as the Trailing 12-Month Financials, the Profit and Loss Statement. It has different names depending on who you're talking to, but essentially the T12 is going to be a financial statement that details the income and expenses of an apartment community over a 12-month period. Excel, or it could be in PDF too, with a bunch of rows for each of the various different income and expense categories. And at the end, it will provide you with a net operating income, and then there also will be a list of the other expenses and some non-operating expenses to eventually come to the net income, which is the actual cash flow you are receiving at the property. So in these next two parts, we're going to go through a sample T12, which you can download for free at syndicationschool.com. And we're going to go ahead and go through each of these line items and define them, explain what they are, as well as what to look for when you're analyzing a T12 during the underwriting process, as well as when you are analyzing it on an ongoing basis. But first, what is the T12 used for, which is Something I've already mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, but essentially, you're going to use the T12 at two points in your business plan. So first, you're going to use it during the underwriting process. So when you're underwriting the deal, you're going to want to use the current owner's profit and loss statement, trailing T12, as a guide for first inputting that data into your cash flow calculator so you know how the property is currently operating. Then you will also use that as a guide for making your income and expense assumptions for once you actually stabilize the asset. We'll talk about how to do that here in a little bit, probably actually in tomorrow's episode, part four. But we might hit on some of it in this episode, at least for the income line items. So you set these assumptions based off of the T12, as well as conversation with your property management company, you get an understanding of kind of what the market expenses are. And then you run a rental comp to figure out what your new rents are going to be. And then based off of that, once your model is completed, you'll submit an offer to the seller. Once the offer is accepted, all these assumptions you made based off of this T12, at least in part, will then be confirmed during the due diligence phase through a variety of due diligence reports and working with your property management company continually, which will result in a finalized projected budget or a pro forma for the property. So essentially, you'll be able to forecast out the income and expense line items for each year you plan on holding on to the property, which at the end of the business plan, when you decide to sell, you'll have a projected NOI each year so that if you sell at year five, you'd be like, okay, well, at year five, my forecasted NOI is this. The in-place cap rate is 5%. I'm going to assume a 5.5% cap rate at sale. So then you can determine how much money you're going to sell the property for. So the T12 is pretty important on the front end for certain, but you will also use it on the back end when you actually have the property under management and you are implementing your business plan because... As I said, you created a forecasted budget, so you're going to have to track the performance of the property on a monthly basis and compare that to your initial 
forecasted budget to make sure that you are on track to meet your return projections. And if there is a big variance, then you're going to want to strategize with your management company to one, identify what the issue is and two, determine how to rectify that issue. And then you're also going to want to send those T12s to your investors as well so they can essentially do the exact same thing. Compare how the property is actually performing to how you forecasted the property to perform. And we actually provide our T12s as well as the rent roll to our investors on a quarterly basis. Technically, you can do it each month, but we do it on a quarterly basis. So before we jump into defining the terms on the example T12, I want to just kind of take a step back and kind of give you an overall big picture of what the T12 is and how it's organized before we go into the specifics. So when you download the free T12 example from an actual deal that Joe has done, the deal sold, so we're able to use it as an example. Across the top, you're going to see a different column for each month. And then below that, the rows are going to be different types of incomes or expenses. Typically, there's going to be an income category. And then under the income category, you're just going to be broken down to rental revenue, so things that are related to rents. And then you're going to see another subcategory of other tenant income. So that's essentially how the T12 flows. It starts with the income, and then it's got various subcategories of the income. And then below that, there's specific line items that make up those subcategories. And then the same thing for expenses. You're going to have kind of the overall category. So operating expenses, for example. And then what are the operating expenses? Well, there's utilities. So that's a subcategory. And then under utilities, you've got water, electric, gas. So then it'll total, okay, total utilities of all those are this number. So that's how it flows. You've got your major categories, which are the income and the expense. And then below those, you're going to have various subcategories. And then below those, you have more subcategories. And then at the smallest detail will be the specific thing for the overall subcategory. And then the bottom of that will add all those smaller metrics together to give you the overall other tenant income, for example. When you're actually underwriting the deal, if the deal is on market, then you'll get this T12 from the listing broker. If the deal is off market, then you'll get it from either the owner or whoever the point person is. The other point person would probably just be the property management company. For larger apartment deals that you're looking at, so this is kind of general, but properties that are 50 units or more, or deals that are professionally managed will likely have a very detailed T12. So the tongue twist I was explaining earlier, but the major categories and under that you got subcategories, under that even more subcategories until you have the individual line items. That would be a very detailed T12 where essentially every single individual expense or income is assigned its own code. So for example, code 4100 is going to be late charges. So whenever there's a late charge, that's input into that as opposed to lumping late charges into other income and just having that one other income line item. So those are going to be the ideal T12s because the more detailed the T12, the better it is for you when you're underwriting the deal because you can actually see what each of the major categories are consisted of. And it also is very helpful when you are obviously trying to compare your projected budget to what's actually happening because, again, rather than saying, oh, well, other income really low, I wonder what's going on. Instead, you can be like, all right, well, other income's really low. Let's take a look at the 25 different line items that make up the other income. Oh, okay, it looks like our parking fees are really low compared to our budget, so that's something that we need to focus on. Whereas for smaller deals, so these are deals that are, again, generally 50 units or below, as well as deals that are not professionally managed, so these are kind of mom-and-pop properties, then you may still have that detailed T12, but 
is more likely that you're going to have a less detailed T12. So maybe you'll have the income category and then below that you'll have rental revenue, but that's it. It doesn't break it down further. So rental revenue is rent, lost a lease, vacancy loss, employee discounts. On a detailed T12, they'll have individual items for those metrics. But if it's not detailed, it might just have rental income and that's it. And then other income. And then for expenses, it might just have like utilities and maintenance and repairs. And it doesn't break it down any further than that. So as I mentioned, the less detailed of the T12, you're going to rely more heavily on your property management company to set those income and expense assumptions. Because if you can't see what each of the categories are consisted of, then you're not going to be able to determine what you'll be able to do better or what's going to be worse or what's going to be held the same. It would be impossible to know because all you have is kind of the total sum of all those individual line items. After acquiring the asset, your property management company should track all of these income and expense figures and then provide you with an updated T12 on a monthly basis. So when you're initially reaching out to your property management companies, if you remember back in an earlier series, one of the things that you asked them was what kind of property management software they use and the type of property management software they use will determine the types of reports they can generate. And you might want to ask them for a sample report. It does not need to be filled out with the actual numbers from a property, but you want to know what types of metric they track. And you're going to want to see, again, the larger categories, the rental revenue categories, the utility categories. You're going to want to see those broken down to the actual individual components that make up that overall category. Now, the major difference between a T12 that you receive during the underwriting process and the T12 you receive from your property management company after you've acquired the property, besides obviously the numbers being different, is going to be an extra column at the end, which is the variance column. So the variance column is going to be essentially the actual numbers minus the forecasted numbers. So ideally, the variance is a zero or a positive number because that means that you are either meeting or exceeding your forecast. If it's negative, then that means something's happening and you are not sticking to your budget. So if you remember, I mentioned about your property management company that they're going to be the one that signs off on your budget initially. So during the underwriting process, as you sign off on your budget, as well as during the due diligence period. So if any income or expense line item or category differs greatly from your budget, so it has a large negative variance, then you're going to want to look at the individual line items under that larger category to see if you can figure out what caused the issue. So for example, if my total rental revenue is a negative variance, and then I look through the individual line item and see, okay, well, my loss to lease was supposed to be 100000 but now it's 200000 and that is accounting for 90% of that variance. Then I can go back and reach out to my private management company and say, hey, this loss of lease is varying greatly from our projections what's going on, what do we need to do in order to fix this. Since your return projections are based off of your budget, if you have these large variances, then that's going to impact your returns. So you're going to want to identify cause of these variances quickly and then resolve those quickly as well. Now, for the remainder of this episode, as well as part three next episode, we're going to walk through an example T12 for a deal that Joe did. We're going to define the major categories I was telling you about, as well as the subcategories and those line items that make up those subcategories, as well as explain what to look for when you're analyzing this T12 during the underwriting process and during the post-acquisition phase. So I'm going to try to go through this as detailed as possible, but it would be helpful if you had the sample T12 that I'm going to go over in front of you. So if you go to the resources site, 
or if you look at the show notes, you should be able to download the example T12 that I will be referring to for the remainder of this episode. This T12 is actually for a 200 plus unit deal that Joe did in Dallas, Texas. At the time that this T12 was pulled, they were 14 months into a value-add business plan. And a little bit over 130 units had been upgraded with about 80 being upgraded by Joe and his team and then 50 being renovated by the previous owner. So about a little over halfway through the value-add business plan. And again, since this is a T12 for one of Joe's deals, this is going to be a very detailed T12. So you're going to have all those line items that you want when you're underwriting as well as when you're going to analyze on an ongoing basis. So in this episode, I want to try to get through all of the income section. And then in the next episode, we're going to focus strictly on the expenses. So if you have a T12 open, or if not, just follow along. The first category under income is going to be the rental revenue. So overall, the income section, what we're going to discuss today, is going to include all the metrics and factors that are related to the revenue of the apartment community. So that is money that is coming in. Generally, it's going to be broken down into two categories. You're going to have the rental revenue or the rents, and then the other one's going to be any other income that you're bringing in. And then both of these categories will obtain various subcategories and various line items that make up the larger rental revenue and other income categories. So for the first one, rental revenue, it's going to include the various incomes and various losses that are associated with the monies collected from leased and non-leased units. So first, you're going to see rent. Pretty self-explanatory. Actually, it's not self-explanatory. So what this is actually referring to is the gross potential rent. So that is going to be the total amount of rent that would be collected if all the units were leased and if all the units were leased at current market rates. So this is not the actual rent collected. This is essentially the total market rent. So when you're underwriting, you're going to want to make sure that this gross potential rent for the most recent month, so in this case, November 2017. It doesn't need to be exactly the same as the rent roll because this is a total for the month of November, whereas the rent roll is just a snapshot in time of November, so it might be a little bit different, but it should be close. So the gross potential rent on the T12 and the rent roll should be close enough. For example, in this T12, it's 195000 We want to see the rent roll around that 195000 plus or minus maybe a couple of hundred dollars. You don't want to see the rent roll with 180000 because that means something's wrong and there's an inputting error somewhere. So kind of just check to make sure that the rent roll and the T12 are actually lined up. You're also going to want to take a look at the 12-month trend. So just kind of look each month stepwise and say, okay, is the gross potential rent going up? Or is it going down? Ideally, it's going up because that lets you know that the rents in that market are actually trending upwards. And if they initiated a value-add program on their end, you also want to see this going up because it should be going up if they're renovating units and adding renovating units, which means that they should be demanding more rent. After acquisition, the first thing you want to do is compare your growth potential rent to your budget. So take a look at that variance column to make sure that that's a positive number or at least a small negative number. And you also want to make sure that it's also trending upwards. Again, you're doing a value-add business plan, so each month you should be renovating units and then demanding more rent. So this number should be going up. Next, you'll see the loss or gain to lease. Now, this is going to be the income that is lost or the income that is gained due to units being rented either below or above the current market rates. So if you take the rent minus the loss slash gain to lease, then that is where you'll get the actual rents that are collected from the tenant. So when you're underwriting the deal, you want to 
essentially set the loss to lease to the same percentage of gross potential rent that is less than on the owner's T12. So you'll want to take the total loss of lease for the year divided by the rent. That'll give you a percentage. On this deal, I believe the loss to lease is around 12%, which is pretty high. But the loss of lease that you're going to have on an ongoing basis is going to be pretty similar to what the current owner is operating at. Because once you take over the property, the loss of lease is going to be what loss of lease percentage that the owner left you. And it's your job to try to burn that off. When you're underwriting a deal, a good loss of lease that you want to see is a 3 to 5% of the gross potential rent. But the loss of lease is 5% or higher. That's not necessarily a bad thing because that means that you have the opportunity to increase the current rent without having to really do anything at all. Besides, obviously, replacing current tenants with new tenants and you're going through the whole leasing process, but you don't have to technically do any renovations. So that's kind of an extra cushion of, of rental increase there on top of your rental premiums. After acquisition, you want to see a loss to lease that is decreasing. So you see in this property, starting from December 2016 to November 2017, yeah, sure, the loss to lease for that year was 12%, but it started off as 20% in December 2016. And after a year of operations, they were able to reduce the loss to lease to 9%. So a 10% reduction in loss to lease is huge. It's an additional $20,000 in revenue that's gained just through increasing rents to market rates. Next, we've got a line item called month to month. So generally, if a resident is not on a one-year lease, let's say their lease expires and they don't want to move out, but they don't want to sign a new lease and you don't really have anyone else to move in there, then you can just put them to a month-to-month lease, or some leases, they'll automatically go to a month-to-month lease. If that's the case, you're typically going to want to charge them a fee for that because there's more risks to you as the owner because they could get up and leave with 30 days notice, whereas for a 12-month lease, you know they're going to be there for 12 months. So that's just what that is. It's kind of an extra income that comes in from having month-to-month leases. Next, we've got a line item that says rent from subsidy slash third-party. Pretty self-explanatory is rent that's paid from someone other than the tenant. So this most common would be Section 8. So maybe the tenant themselves pays 50% of their rent and then Section 8 pays the remaining 50%. We've got accelerated rent charges. So if a resident stops paying rent, then you're able to demand the entire balance of the remainder of their lease in one lump sum. So when you're underwriting a deal, if there's a lot of accelerated rent charges, then that's a sign of a poor renter demographic that you're going to want to replace. And then obviously when you have the property yourself, you want to kind of minimize this. Even though it is income coming in, if you have a lot of accelerated rent charges, it's going to impact you negatively elsewhere, specifically in the vacancy category. Next on there, you'll see delinquent rent. Pretty self-explanatory if a resident hasn't paid the rent by the end of their grace period. So it's typically 35 days after the first of the month it's considered delinquent. So however much rent that is delinquent at that time, in this rent roll, there's only one month where it looks like a few tenants hadn't paid their rent. If this delinquent rent is pretty high, again, this is going to be a indicator of a poor resident demographic who's not paying their rent on time. And that's something you want to just kind of keep in mind when you're underwriting the deal. Next, we've got vacancy loss. So this is going to be the income that is lost due to vacant units. So if you've got 10 units that are vacant, that could be rented at 800 bucks. your vacancy loss is going to be $8,000 for that month. 
This is not the same as the vacancy rate. So this is not the rate of unoccupied units. This is essentially the total money that are lost because of vacant units. So those are two different metrics. The acceptable rate for vacancy loss is going to vary from market to market and deal to deal and based off the historical operation of the property. But generally, you don't want to see a vacancy rate that exceeds 8 to 10% while you're doing renovations and then 5% after renovation. So if you are underwriting a deal and see a pretty high vacancy rate, you're going to want to ask a couple of questions about what's going on with that. And you're going to want to set your underwriting assumptions to 8 to 10% while you're renovating. 5 to 6%-ish or whatever the historical vacancy rate is for post-renovations and make sure you're sticking to that when you're analyzing your T12 on an ongoing basis. Next, we've got employee discounts. These are going to be rental discounts that are given to employees who choose to live in the units. Next, we have bad debt. Bad debt is going to be money that is owed by a tenant who has moved out. So when you're underwriting, you're going to want to essentially set the bad debt assumption to the same percentage of gross potential rent that is listed on the owner's T12. So if the owner is currently getting 2%, then you're going to want to assume that you're going to get 2% as well. Ideally, bad debt does not exceed 2% of the gross potential rent and should ideally hover around 1%. But the bad debt is 10% or whatever, then you're going to have to do some adjustments and say, okay, well, day one, we're at 10%. Should I burn that off to 5% by the end of year one and then eventually get to that 2% by the end of year two? Next, we've got model or administrative units. So these are units that are vacant, but they're not vacant because a tenant's not living there. It's because it's being used for some other purpose. So a model unit, an admin unit, an office. And then the last one is going to be one-time special or allowance. So this is going to be income that is lost due to concessions given to residents which are usually going to be, as this says, you know, one-time rent specials. So you waive an application fee, you discount their rent or security deposits, things like that. And these are typically offered to attract new residents to the property in order to increase the occupancy rate. When underwriting, unless the concession is normally high, so you know, 10% of the gross potential rent would be pretty insanely high. But typically, it'll just set your stabilized assumption to the same percentage of gross potential rent as the current owner. And your goal would be to keep concessions as low as possible. And the concessions will likely be tied to the vacancy loss. So as vacancy loss goes up, concessions will also go up. As vacancy loss goes down, concessions should be going down as well. So those are all the rental revenue. Let's quickly go through the other income. Just because typically when you're underwriting, you're just going to plug in your vacancy loss, your loss to lease, your bad debt, your concessions, your employee units. Whereas for other income, you're just plugging in other income. You're not going to plug in late charges and pet fees and bad debt collection. So I'll just quickly go over what these ones mean. But essentially, other income is any other income that's collected from residents that is not associated with their monthly rent. So when you're underwriting, you're going to want to set your stabilized other income assumption to the same percentage of gross potential rent that is listed on the T12. The only way you wouldn't is if you plan on adding something to the asset that will bring in additional income, like parking, different amenities, rubes, programs. Or if you see another income fee that is abnormally high, late charges, for example, if those are really high and you plan on kind of turning over the property and putting it into the demographic of renter, then that is likely going to be reduced. So let's go through these to wrap up the episode. So we've got late charges. These are fees that are paid by residents for paying the rent late. And having a high amount of consistent late charges may indicate a poor demographic. And if you plan on turning over the property, this will likely be going down. 
Next, we have application fee income. Whenever a tenant applies for a unit, they have to fill out an application, and that requires background checks, credit checks. So typically, you can charge a fee to cover those expenses on your end. Next is pet fee. If a tenant has a pet in their unit, you can charge them a fee. Administrative fees, these are fees that cover the admin costs of leasing a unit to a new resident. Insufficient notice penalty, so this is a fee that's paid by a resident who decides to move out without giving you sufficient notice as defined in the lease. Lease termination fees, fee paid by a tenant who terminates the lease before the lease end date. Bad debt collection is going to be the income from collecting the bad debt from residents who have moved out. So you've got your bad debt in the rental revenue, which is going to be a negative number. So it's going to be an actual loss, whereas the bad debt collection is going to be a positive number. And ideally, you're collecting all of the bad debt, but it's most likely not going to happen, which is why you account for that in your underwriting. Lease violation fees. These are fees paid by residents who violate the terms of their lease. We've got reserved covered parking fees. A tenant who decides to sign up for a reserved parking spot or a covered parking spot or a carport or a parking garage or whatever parking situation you have there, you can charge a fee for that. Amenity fee, this is a fee paid by your residents for using a certain paid amenity. NSF fee is non-sufficient funds. So if a resident rental, you know, their check, their credit card is uh, rejected by the bank. So if the check bounces, the credit card is rejected. Then that's going to cost you money because it's rent you don't have plus it's rent you that you don't have. So you can charge them a fee for that. Plus you'll be charged a fee by them and you don't want to pass it on to your tenants. Damage fee is a fee if a tenant damages their unit. And you fix it, you can charge them a fee for that. Same with the cleaning fee as well. Miscellaneous income, as it says, any other income that doesn't fit into another category. Cable TV commission is a commission paid to you from the cable company for essentially giving them business. If you've got a 200 plus unit apartment building, everyone's using a spectrum cable. Then if there's multiple competing cable TV companies, which there will be, and you go with one over the other, then they'll pay you money for helping them out. Renters insurance charges. So these are fees collected from the residents who decide to use your renters insurance policy. Transfer fee. This is a fee charged to tenants who transfer from one unit to another. Keys, cards, or remotes. If someone loses a key or a remote to their garage or some sort of card to get into the, the gym, then you can charge them a fee to replace that. Utility commission income. Commission paid to you from the utility company. Again, for giving the business so similar to the cable TV commission. These next line items, utility reimbursement for water, electric, trash, pest, gas, are all going to be essentially the RUBES program. So these will be the reimbursements from your residents for the water, common electric, trash, pest control, and common gas. And then utility billing fee, since you're paying for their utilities, if there's any sort of fees associated with the bills that you pay, then you can pass it on to your tenants as well. Security deposit forfeiture, these are income collected from residents who have to forfeit their security deposit for one reason or another. And then there's bad debt other income, which is, again, tied to that bad debt collection. That concludes the other income. There's this other line item before we get total income, which is the interest income earned. So if you have an interest earning account where you're holding your security deposits or your rents, then you can account for that there and then... Of course, at the bottom, you're going to have your total income. So that's the sum of all of the rental revenue line items, all of the other income line items, as well as that interest income earned line item. So we're going to stop there. And in the next episode, we'll go through all of the expense line items, which is a lot more than income. So it'll definitely fill up a full episode. 
So just kind of summarize what we went over in this episode. We talked about what a T12 is, what it's used for during the underwriting process, and then on an ongoing basis when you're implementing your business plan. We kind of went over the big picture of how the T12 flows, and then we were able to go through the first part of the T12, which is the income section. And we got through all of those and ended up at total income and stopped before we got to the expenses, which we'll focus on, as I said, in tomorrow's episode. So again, I recommend downloading this T12 off of the syndicationschool.com website or off of the show notes of this episode, just so you can see how it flows yourself, as well as kind of follow along as I go through each of these different line items. But until then, I would recommend checking out the other Syndication School series episodes to learn the how-tos of apartment syndications and to download the T12 free document as well as past free documents at syndicationschool.com. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you guys tomorrow. Stessa is the essential tool for tracking your rental properties, and it's going to save you a tremendous amount of time during tax season. Stessa organizes all of your rental property financials and automatically creates all the reports you need to file your tax return. And Stessa teamed up with the top real estate CPAs to offer you, best ever listeners, the ultimate rental property tax guide to help you maximize your deductions. Get that copy when you sign up for an account that counts free. So get the copy by going to stessa.com forward slash best taxes. That's S-T-E-S-S-A dot com forward slash best taxes. When it's Friday at 4.30 p.m., it's time for Entrepreneur Drinks Podcast, which is co-produced by Joint Ops Properties and Discount Property Investors. Join their end of the work week session as they tackle problems facing entrepreneurs, Listen and subscribe at entrepreneurdrinks.com. That's entrepreneurdrinks.com.